When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Unfiltered, I'm Essie Cup. Here's tonight's headline, panic attack. The coronavirus has unleashed a wave of panic across the country, evidenced by runs on hand sanitizer and face masks, cancellations of major events, schools, and transportation closures, and quarantines in a handful of states. There are two crucial weapons in the fight to stop an outbreak, science and information. Now, I'm not a scientist. If you're also not a scientist, you're left to rely on information passed along from scientists to the government and then to the public, you and me. But that information has been slow to come, complicated, and in some cases even compromised, resulting in, well, panic. That's not because we don't have good scientists. It's mostly because we don't trust our government. Public trust in government is at historic lows, and President Trump isn't helping. He has made, according to fact-checkers, more than 14,000 false or misleading claims since his inauguration. We told you his lies would matter, even as his supporters shrugged them off as just, you know, Trump being Trump. Nowhere are the lies more consequential than during a major health crisis. To wit, the president claimed he had a hunch that the World Health Organization is wrong about the death rate from coronavirus. He has undermined the severity of the outbreak by claiming Democrats are just trying to hurt him politically. He has used the health crisis to advocate for his anti-immigration policy. He has contradicted his own scientists and experts in real time. During a serious visit to the CDC, he cracked a joke about his Ukraine phone call being more perfect than coronavirus tests. He riffed on TV ratings. He stoked a feud with the governor of the state at the epicenter of the U.S. outbreak. And there was this. And we now shipped out, I think it is enough to test 75,000 people into the public health lab now. Anybody that wants a test can get a test. That's what I I would just say that we... So is it 75,000 people who can get tested or is it everybody? A quarantine nurse says she was refused to test even though she'd been exposed to the virus. If you're confused, well, here was White House Counselor Kellyanne Conway on Friday to clear things up. What I am pleased to report is that the 14 deaths so far that are completely tragic and very sad in this country um, shows that this has been contained because the president took action and a lot of you criticized him for doing that. This is false. The outbreak is not contained. Since Kellyanne made this false claim, nearly 200 coronavirus cases have been added to the national tally, bringing the total number of cases in the U.S. to at least 406 across 29 states. Here's the deal. This is why we're panicked. We don't know who to believe. We don't believe the commander in chief. And at the worst possible time in the U.S. alone, the flu is responsible for 18,000 deaths this season, according to the CDC. 
coronavirus 17. And yet we're stocking our pantries with toilet water and bottled toilet paper and bottled water. We're paying as much as $350 for a two pack of Purell. We're canceling our travel. Austin's massive South by Southwest Festival canceled. University of Washington is doing online classes only. NBA teams may play games in empty arenas. Acela suspended three express trains between New York and D.C. All of this is probably over an abundance of caution. That's good. But it's also pretty clear a response to a government that we don't trust, led by a president we don't believe. That lack of trust cuts both ways. Here was one Trump supporter saying she doesn't believe coronavirus is real. So you don't believe coronavirus exists? I don't. I don't. So the two people who've been reported to have died from it in Washington state, you don't trust that that's true? I don't trust anything the Democrats do or say. What are the odds she's washing her hands for a full 20 seconds? This lack of trust is worse than bad. It's dangerous, as New York Governor Andrew Cuomo put it. We have an epidemic caused by coronavirus, but we have a pandemic that is caused by fear. Now, what causes fear? Only two things. People get afraid when either they they think they don't have the right information or they don't trust the information they're getting or the information they're getting is so frightening that they have the normal reaction. Joining me to discuss is Ann Kirthdean of Yale School of Nursing and professor at the Yale School of Public Health. Um, Dr. Kurth, let me just ask you, is this supposed to be going better? We have a lot of lessons learned, Essie, from pandemics in the past. So we've been here before. Mm. The scale of the, and, and impact of, on the economy is probably somewhat unprecedented. Mm. But we do know the basic principles. And the, your point is really crucial. This is no time for politics or partisanship. We have to have fact-based science that's led by people who know what they're doing, which is your public health and your health care workers on the ground. Yeah, so how, how important is managing the flow of information um, to controlling and containing an outbreak? What, what, what is the link between that information getting out, it being accurate and going to the right people, and actually containing this outbreak? Right. And so, again, with a brand new pathogen, we will be learning more as time goes on. That has to be said. It is a dynamic uh, unfolding uh, yes. events. And so we, we will learn more as we go. And it really will know the most in retrospect. That said, we know there are some basic common sense principles. And these are things that your mother told you. Mm. Wash your hands. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you know. Cough into your elbow. (laughs) Social distancing of six feet if you think someone is coughing or or sneezing. These are fundamental principles that anyone can enact. So Mm. we're not disempowered. I would also say turn off Twitter. Hmm. Go to the CDC website and go with information that you can trust. And that will have to be science-based. Can we trust what the president is saying? I don't think we need to turn to the president to understand what we should be doing on the ground in our locales. We should be working with our city, state uh, and local health departments and our health systems. And that is unrolling as we go forward. Nurses have expressed their frustration that they are not getting accurate information. They are not getting test uh, testing or treatment either. Um, If they're not getting the information they want, 
how do we know in the general public that we're getting the information? So there was a survey done by a national nursing organization yeah. that did assess whether nurses were hearing from their hospitals, is there a preparedness plan, do we have the protocols, do we have the protective equipment, and not every hospital had that to, to the level that it should have. And frankly, there's no excuse for that. Health workers are on the front line. They need the protective equipment. They need the testing. They need the protocols. And they need to be protected if they are exposed and have to be treated. And so we have to maintain the rights of everyone, particularly our frontline uh, workers. Sure. Nurses are the front line. Yeah. There are four million of us in the United States, yeah. and we are the most trusted uh, profession in the country. So we can leverage that trust. We are here for patients. Dr. Ann Kerr, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, now I want to bring in former DNC chair and former Virginia governor Terry McAuliffe. Um, governor, it's individual states that are really feeling the stress of, of this um, coronavirus crisis. As a former governor, what would you be telling the people of your state in the middle of all of this chaos and misinformation coming from the top of government? And SC, that's the problem, because for the governors, we have to rely in a pandemic like this on the federal government to provide us information. Right. And then we get it out to all of our cities and counties. Right now, you're not in getting anything out of the Trump administration. And what you are getting out are facts that are just plain wrong. I mean, he has lied to us. We have a compulsive liar in the White House dealing with this very serious crisis. He said everybody who wants to be tested can be tested. We know that's not true. He says it's been contained. It hasn't been contained. But, you know, this is a history with this Trump administration. I dealt with this administration through immigration policy on ICE detainers. I dealt with the president in Charlottesville when I told him he needed to come out and condemn hatred. And he came out and said there were good people on both sides. Donald Trump looks at everything, not for the health and safety of the people who live in this country, which is your job. And it's a governor's job to keep people safe. He looks at it through a prism of how do I win reelection? And I hate to say this, and I hope it's not true. But is he deliberately holding down the numbers? He won't let the people off the cruise ship because he doesn't want the numbers to go up. Are people not being tested because he doesn't want it to affect the economy, affect the stock market, which is the only thing he can run on and talk at least about running on. And that's what's disconcerting. We need information at the state level to make our own decisions. We're passing yeah, budgets. Yeah, pe people, people wondered the same um, when it came to the reporting of, of deaths uh, after Puerto Rican hurricanes, too. Right. We also remember Donald Trump drawing, you know, on a weather map uh, to make one of his, you know, forecasts true. The, the you know, we can we can talk partisan politics all we want, but his, yep. you know, distortion of facts and science is dangerous in a time like this. But I, I want to know from you, Governor, how can we restore our faith in government? I mean, as you just saw, it's not just us distrusting yeah. Trump. His supporters don't trust Democrats. Democrats don't trust Republicans, most of us don't trust government. It feels like we're broken. Well, because I think we've gone through several years now, and as you mentioned some of these, a president who just, I mean, he's thousands and thousands of lies. They've all been categorized about the number of lies he had. So people don't have faith in their elected officials anymore because the president of the United States of America cannot tell the truth. And so people just don't pay attention anymore. This is a crisis that we all need to be paying attention to. It's going to have severe ramifications. We are at the beginning of this. We are not in the middle or at the end. And you look to your president to be that moral leader. We want someone to stand up in a moment of crisis and give us direction and help us. But practically at the state level, our information all comes from the federal government that we then relay to our yeah. cities and counties and our health officials. Without that information, 
we're flying in the blind. We need all of us, 50 states, working together and come together with a comprehensive plan. And this is the sad thing about the Trump administration. But it's been example after example. But this is the most serious, where the president is putting Americans' health at risk. He is compulsively lying about the test kits, about the number of people who have been infected. It has not been contained. And it is really, it's, it's sad for this country. We should be a leader. I mean, look at 140,000 people have been tested in South Korea. Right. Other nations are able to do this. We are the greatest nation on earth and we can't do it because we have a president who is deliberately trying to hold things down because he doesn't want people to be affected as it relates to the economy. And if he doesn't have a strong economy, Donald Trump has zero chance of winning re-election. Do you think that Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden should cancel big campaign events and rallies in light of this health crisis? I think they should look at it. Uh, they've got to make their own decisions. I don't want people to panic. I think people have to be smart about going about their everyday lives. I mean, conferences are all being canceled. Uh, I just talked to my son yeah. who was on a flight from San Diego to San Francisco. There were 10 people on the plane. Yeah. Um, I mean, people are, are making those precautions for themselves. But you know, I, I, we got to go about it on our lives. We got to continue. We got to continue to do what we're doing every day as Americans. But we got to make smart decisions about it. And if you have to, don't have to go to huge rallies, maybe you shouldn't go. But, you know, we still got to continue on. We are America. We are strong when we're united together. But please, let's get some leadership out of the federal government from the Trump administration so we can mar start making some smart decisions. The president should be giving yeah. us a, a path. Yeah. And he's not giving us well, a path. If you do go attend a rally, take a listen to what Dr. Kurth and your mom says, wash your hands, cough into your elbow, and uh, try yeah. not to touch anyone if you don't have to. Yeah. All right, Governor, good I, to see you. I got you. Perel in my Thank pocket you. right now, I see. Oh, me too, me too. Yeah, very good. I am, I am armed. All right. <laughs> Thank you. And then there were two. Another big primary day looms. Will Sanders see his fortunes change, or will the so-called establishment put Biden over the top? That answer could come down to one pivotal state. I'll talk to the former governor of Michigan for her insight. That's all coming up. And then there were two. Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are gearing up for another crucial primary day. Six states will vote on Tuesday. After Biden's Super Tuesday comeback, Sanders desperately needs to have a good night. So in Michigan last night, he attacked Joe Biden's record on everything from foreign policy to trade. Joe Biden and I have very, very strong differences in terms of our record and in terms of what we believe to be the case. NAFTA was not a success. Voting for it was a big, big mistake. Both Sanders and Biden are honing their messaging against each other. For Biden, he's making the point that Sanders will divide the Democratic Party and hand Trump the election. For Sanders, he's making the point that Biden is the establishment and the establishment doesn't work for all Americans. Joe is running a campaign which is obviously heavily supported by the corporate establishment. Uh, at last count, he has received funding from at least 60 billionaires. So which message will resonate with more voters? Well, Biden's Super Tuesday wins this week expose something about the Sanders campaign. It has no clothes. If this election is rigged for Biden, it wasn't rigged very well. Biden was basically broke going into Super Tuesday.
He barely campaigned in some of the states he won, states like Massachusetts, Maine and Texas. Biden won all kinds of voters in all kinds of places. He won urban voters, upscale and middle class suburban voters and rural Appalachian voters. Are they the establishment? Are they proof of election rigging? The inconvenient truth for Sanders seems to be that the establishment isn't standing in his way. Voters are. Okay, now let me bring in Democratic Congressman from Wisconsin and co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Mark Pocan, who has endorsed Sanders. Um, Congressman, Sanders himself said this week there's a massive effort to stop Bernie Sanders. Explain to me what that massive effort is. Well, I think we just saw, I mean, Joe Biden had a great week, but it's the first great week he's had in a year. And certainly a lot of things happened with people dropping out of the race before Super Tuesday, endorsing him all on the same day. Uh, There was a great orchestration that occurred that helped lift Joe Biden. Uh, But now, like a basketball bracket, we're down to the finals. We have the final two candidates. And now the distinction is very clear, right? We have a moderate, more establishment candidate. You have a progressive, more populist candidate. And now let's really talk about those issues, because I think uh, those issues really matter, especially in trying to drive out votes in places like Wisconsin that are a must win looking at November. But isn't I mean, the endorsements and is this just like campaigning? I mean, Sanders has huge name ID. He ran for president before. He's got a sophisticated ground game and devoted followers. He was the front runner for a while. Um, All the makings of a solid campaign. Is it possible he's just not a national candidate? Well, and it still is a solid campaign. They're basically within not that many delegates different from each other because right. uh, we still haven't counted all the California votes. So there's still a lot to come. I, I think what we're seeing, though, is there are a lot of people, and I can tell you this from now serving um, seven years uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, there is a, a political class, and I think mm-hmm. this is what the, the real problem is, uh, that don't really see the urgency for change like people in Wisconsin and many places in the country do. Uh, people mm-hmm. uh, make six or seven figures and they have health insurance and they don't have the same worries that people in my district and the other places I've campaigned have. Uh, Let's face it, if uh, there wasn't a political uh, establishment or a political class, we would have cheaper drug prices in this country. But there are 1,500 plus lobbyists in Washington, D.C. for Big Pharma and that's why we pay 10 times more for insulin here than we do in Canada. So that part is true. The thing Mm. that we have to do is make sure that we're fighting against that part so that we can get cheaper drug prices and get access for health care for every single person and not spend time in needless wars where all too often uh, people in places like Wisconsin and across the country can lose a son or daughter or that son or daughter can lose a limb or lose their family uh, from being gone for so long. So those issues are very real, but maybe not for some people uh, who like to talk about it a lot inside the Beltway. Well, and as as you're saying, Sanders really likes to rail against the establishment. Um, for all the reasons you, you just laid out. Is it possible, though, that after four years of Trump, um, people are actually kind of into the establishment, maybe reassured by the establishment, and maybe that's what you're seeing reflected in, in all the, the voters coming out for Biden? 
No, I, you know, I think it's very fair. People know four more years of Donald Trump could be devastating for this country. Yeah. Uh, your last segment on coronavirus alone explained that. So people, that's why the votes have been all over the board in these primaries, and people are like, what's the best way to make sure Donald Trump right. is not president? But the second component isn't you can't just run against Donald Trump because he's bad. You have to have a candidate who appeals to enough new voters so that we win. What cost us in Wisconsin in 2016 was a $250,000 and Democratic voter drop-off because they weren't inspired enough to come out and vote. You can't have that happen again in Wisconsin yeah. and Michigan and Pennsylvania and many other parts. So um, I just think when I look at how Bernie Sanders ran in Wisconsin in 2016, he took 71 out of 72 counties. He got uh, right. 73% of young voters, 72% of independent voters, a majority of women. I mean, this is a person who really could appeal in a place like Wisconsin, and we have to win Wisconsin in order to make sure Donald Trump's not president this year. It is a very important state. We'll, uh, we'll be keeping an eye on it. Congressman Pocan, thanks so much for your time tonight. Sure. Thank you so much. Democratic voters in six states will have their chance to weigh in this Tuesday, but the battle in Michigan could be decisive. I'll talk to a former governor of that state next. A warning to my Democratic friends. You may find what I'm about to say triggering. I want to take you back to December 2016 when all the autopsies of Hillary Clinton's loss to Donald Trump were being performed. Take a look at this headline from Politico. How Clinton lost Michigan and blew the election. Now, this bit from a DNC consultant who couldn't believe Clinton's campaign had made the decision to essentially ignore the state says it all. They believed they were more experienced, which they were. They believed they were smarter, which they weren't. They believed they had better information, which they didn't. Well, what a difference four years make. The top two Democratic candidates are trying to course correct from Clinton's big miss there. That primary is Tuesday, the biggest prize of six states that will be voting with 125 delegates at stake. Joe Biden has already gotten some key endorsements from top Michigan Democrats, including the governor and former governor. Sanders needs a win in Michigan to boost his momentum, and he knows it. He canceled an appearance in Mississippi to spend more time there ahead of the primary. So who's poised to take the important state this time? Joining me now to discuss is former Michigan Governor Jen Granholm. Governor Granholm has endorsed Joe Biden ahead of the state's primary. Um, Governor, just how much PTSD do you think Democrats are still suffering from 2016 (laughs) over Michigan? That is, I mean, truly, it is Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. We are still freaked out about having lost them. We should not lose them. We should not lose them in 2020. And that's why I think there's an awful lot of effort being put into making sure those are back in the win column for Democrats. Yeah, and I know the auto auto industry is obviously a big factor in Michigan politics. Um, Biden takes credit for helping to save the auto industry. And he should. Is is it all going to come down to that? Well, it certainly is something that Michigan remembers. So I was governor during the bankruptcy and during the Great Recession, the bankruptcies in the auto industry, which were preceded by bankruptcies in the suppliers. So at the time when the Obama administration came into office, our unemployment rate in Michigan was about 15 percent because we were right in the thick of those uh, that auto meltdown. And there was a question inside the Obama administration about whether they should just allow the ba- auto companies companies to go bankrupt, like Mitt Romney uh, had said. And for it was Joe Biden, the guy who understood that there was a million 
manufacturing jobs, not just in Michigan, but in the industrial Midwest that were at risk. He was our advocate and our ally. He went to bat, and it was I, so much credit and gratitude to him for s intervening. Obviously, Obama himself was predisposed to save those jobs, but really, Joe Biden was a huge, hmm. huge advocate. And can I, let me just say one other thing, Essie, yeah. is that after that happened, then he was in charge of the Recovery Act. And during the Recovery Act, again, he made sure that Michigan got exactly what we needed to be able to help people as we were transitioning through this horrible bankruptcy. So hmm. hundreds of millions of dollars he made sure got to Michigan to make sure people could stay on health care. He gave us a billion dollars from the Recovery Act so that we could diversify from the internal combustion engine automobile to the electric mm. vehicle. I mean, he did so much for us during the Recovery Act. And then, just quickly, he had one sure. more uh, act that he did, mm -hmm. which is when, when Detroit went into bankruptcy, not just the autos, but the city of Detroit right. went into bankruptcy. He rallied the federal government to create a Detroit task force that was able to attack blight and and busing and lighting. I'm telling you, people remember in Michigan hmm. that Joe Biden stood up for us when we were on our knees. He put us on his shoulders and he carried us through that recovery. Well, yeah, and we'll see if that all pays off on, on Tuesday. But, you know, on the flip side, Bernie Sanders won Michigan in the last primary. Does, yep. does that make yep. it his to lose again? Well, I mean, certainly nothing can be taken for granted. I know there was a poll out this week that had Joe Biden seven points up. And, but I don't think anybody can rely on any polling because nobody saw Bernie Sanders win coming either, or Donald Trump's for that matter, in Michigan. So, so clearly there has to be a lot of work on the ground. And Bernie Sanders is, you know, he's on the attack. I understand that. You got to make whatever differentiations you can. But as we have been saying uh, throughout this campaign, is people know Joe Biden. Michigan knows mm. Joe Biden. Whatever tax can be levied, they know that he stands with mm -hmm. working people in the state of Michigan, and that is super important for us. You know, I, I lived in Michigan when I was um, younger, so I'm familiar with the, the contours of the state. What? I did. I know. I didn't know, I know. that. I did. Where were uh, you? <laughs> I was in West Bloomfield um, in, oh, in Oakland well, County. Nice. Yeah, yeah, and and um, you know Hillary did real well in those affluent, well-educated counties like Oakland and and Washtenaw. But obviously, in the more rural parts of the state, i.e., most yes. of the state, um, Trump really trounced her. And the final results yeah, were yeah. very close. He won Michigan, as you know, by just 2.2 percent. Yeah. Um, does Trump still have the advantage there? Um, well, this is what I would say. In the general election, you are right to point out that there was not an aggressive strat an aggressive rural strategy. It's interesting right. because Obama had a rural strategy, and he won about 28% of the rural vote, and Hillary Clinton chose to double down on getting out the base, and she only won about 22% of the rural vote. And mm -hmm. that difference, I mean, in Michigan, she lost by only 10,700 votes. Right. That's just such a tiny percentage. Yes. Now, granted, she got some help from the Russians. You know, he got some help from the Russians. <laughs> there were all sorts of other voter suppression activities happening in, inside mm. the city of Detroit. But the bottom line is you have to go and make the case to people in every county to let them know you see them, yep. that you yep. are on their side. And Joe Biden yep. is doing that. And that's very exciting. Well, Governor, thanks so much for joining me. We'll be watching your you home state on Tuesday, along with you, I'm sure. All right, Elizabeth Warren's exit from the race has brought up cries of sexism in presidential elections. That's next. 
in the red file tonight with two men leading the field for president. Women will have to wait at least another four years to see a woman become president. For some, the reason Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar and Kamala Harris did not succeed in their quest for the nomination is clear. It's their lady parts. Sexism is the reason they were kept from the prize. Take a look at this rash of headlines. Indeed, both Warren and Harris acknowledged that for them, sexism was a factor. Gender in this race, you know, that is the trap question for every woman. Uh, if you say, yeah, there was sexism in this race, everyone says, whiner. And if you say, no, there was no sexism, about a bazillion women think, what planet do you live on? The reality is that there's still a lot of work to be done to make it very clear that women are exceptionally qualified and capable of being the commander-in-chief of the United States of America. Klobuchar, though, was far less willing to hang her loss on her gender. Here's what she had to say in an exit interview with The New York Times. Let's start with the obvious. Biden and Bernie had run for president before, and they were the most well-known. I'm not saying that they weren't deserving of this, but those were the facts. So I just don't see it as an indictment of women candidates. I've often stepped back and wondered, well, is it? Were they looking for a man to run against Donald Trump? Maybe in another election. I don't know. Now, polls show a majority of Americans are, in fact, comfortable with a woman president. 71 percent, according to a USA Today Ipsos poll for, from January. And there's this. A CNN poll from January found that 89 percent of men believe a woman can win the presidency. Oddly, 79 percent of women were on the same page. So what are we talking about here? Sexism from where? Remember, this was a Democratic primary, so I guess we're implicating Democratic voters for any gender biases that played on. Or is it something else? Let's discuss it with Patty Solis-Doyle, former Hillary Clinton campaign manager, plus Aaron Gloria Ryan, host of Crooked Media's Hysteria podcast. Um, Aaron, good to see you. You will not be surprised to learn I did not find Warren's campaign appealing. Um, I, I didn't like being That's repeatedly scolded. I know, I know, I know. Um, I didn't like being repeatedly scolded and told that, like, unless I see things her way, I'm probably a terrible, no good person. And look, I feel similarly about Sanders, all caps style. Um, can that just be a preference and not sexism? Your description of why you didn't connect with Warren is a totally understandable reason okay, to not good. support her. Uh -huh. But I think that it would be naive for people to pretend that we are not actually a country where sexism is a factor in the mm. way that we treat female candidates. I mean, to say yeah. that it was the only factor is a little bit oversimplifying, but to say that it wasn't a factor yeah. is... I think also naive in its own way. Now, Patty, as I said, the implication here is that Democratic voters are sexist. Um, do you believe that's the case? Well, look, when Elizabeth Warren dropped out, I asked myself, I actually tweeted, I said, hey, America, what does it take for a woman to actually get elected president? Yeah. You know, be smarter, work harder, be tougher, be better prepared, mm. you know, have a be more qualified, have a proven track record. Well, you know, check, check, check and check over the yeah. last couple of cycles or several cycles, actually, various women have run against various men and have done all of the above, but they've lost in various degrees. Mm -hmm. And you have to ask yourself, 
why? And and I agree with Aaron. You know, it's not the only reason, but I do think mm. that we are being naive if sexism doesn't play a role yeah. in each of those losses. Well, Aaron, is it is it a generational thing? I'm thinking about the Chris Matthews Elizabeth Warren interview where he questioned her belief in a woman accusing Mike Bloomberg of of telling her to end her pregnancy. I don't think a man in his 30s would have put her on the spot for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think that it is partly a generational thing. I think that I see millennial men are a lot more open-minded about having a female boss or having a female president. But one thing that I thought was really interesting about the way that people talked about this election was people were concerned about Elizabeth Warren's electability, which is a kind of backdoor way to say, I am fine with a woman president. I just think my neighbor might not be fine with a woman president. So it's like, I feel like a lot of the sexism was outsourced to the invisible sexist neighbor in this <laughs> case. And we'll never know the full extent of how yeah. that all played into why she didn't have a more successful candidacy, why Amy Klobuchar didn't have a more successful candidacy. Yeah. But I, I think it's, a, it's just a new version of the same old thing. Well, because, yeah, I mean, concerns about Warren's electability could be concerns about her ideological far leftness. You know, we just we just don't mm -hmm. know. But, uh, uh, Patty, there's right. going to be immense pressure on Biden or Sanders to put mm -hmm. a woman on their ticket. Will that be seen as as genuine or kind of like a consolation prize for women? Well, first of all, I think it will be seen as practical, honestly, you know, uh, yeah white suburban women are going to be very key in the 2020 election. It's what uh, what one Democrats back the House. Uh, we did very well with the Senate. So I think it's going to be a very practical decision to put mm -hmm. a woman on the ticket. And honestly, that may be the way that we actually get a woman president is to make, you know, have her be vice president first and then let her uh, work her way up from there. Erin, hmm. uh, before I let you go, I just have to girl detective this with you. Uh, Bill Clinton, <laughs> in a new documentary, says his affair with Monica Lewinsky helped ease his anxiety. Now, was that a good thing to say or a bad thing to say? And be specific. <laughs> oh, man. I don't like that guy. <laughs> that was a terrible <laughs> thing to say. It's never like taking advantage of somebody who you have an immense amount of power over is a, is a terrible thing to do. I don't care how anxious you are. You're the president. Be better. That's all yeah. I have to say about uh, we, that. We can, we can, we can, we can unite a bridge. I don't like that guy either. Okay, Patty, Aaron, <laughs> I concur. So much. Yeah. All right. The three of us united. We don't like that guy. All right. We did it. <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right. Sanders likes to slam the media. Biden has largely avoided it. Will that all change now that they are the last men standing? The two Democratic presidential candidates are known to have a bad case of allergies to the media. Joe Biden has mostly avoided all but friendly interviews. Bernie Sanders has been vocal about his disdain for the corporate media. He's also been known to lose his temper when asked questions he doesn't like. But the day after his disappointing Super Tuesday, a cheerful Sanders greeted Rachel Maddow on MSNBC, a network he and his allies have long complained about. His campaign is reportedly in final talks to appear in a town hall on that network. He's also doing a Fox News town hall. The senator has already also appeared in three town halls on CNN, and he'll be on with R. Jake Tapper on Sunday. As for Biden, he sat down with CBS and the Today Show this week. So now that it's a two-man race, will Sanders and Biden change their media approaches? With me now is CNN's chief media correspondent, host of Reliable Sources, Brian Stelter. Um, so Sanders' campaign manager once called MSNBC's coverage terrible. Is this decision to go on MSNBC now 
born out of necessity. I do think he's, he's seeking votes wherever he can, given how strong Biden is performing. Yeah. And he knows he needs to reach the MSNBC audience. Sure. But to your point, also doing a Fox News town hall on Monday, yes. right before the next Super Tuesday contest. Really interesting. Uh -huh. What all of this shows is that earned media is beating free media, uh, is beating a paid media. Right. Earned media means CNN. It means news coverage of your campaign because it's newsworthy. Mm -hmm. uh, Bloomberg went the other way. He went with paid media. He was buying right. $500 million yes. in ads. You know, a week ago, Bloomberg was all we could talk about. You know, right. Bloomberg was on the cover of New York Magazine. He was everywhere. Yeah. It's amazing how, how fast time is flying, but it does speak to how paid media has not yeah. been as effective as earned media in this election. Well, and Sanders hasn't been uh, unavailable to the press. He, he, he does a lot of yeah, interviews in town halls. Biden, um, uh, the other end of the he's spectrum. He's more careful. He's been he's more careful. Very he's very careful. Yeah. And it feels, I mean, even today he was he was at a rally and I think spoke for a total of seven minutes. Right. Um, I, you know, I, I sort of think of him as like the George Costanza of, of the campaign, like leave oh. him on a high note, go in, make a joke, get the, you know, get the crowd applause and then leave before he can say anything. Why, because he's avoiding doing anything that's going to be a gaffe? Is that it the idea? It seems that way. Yeah. I mean, he's been real reluctant to face the media. Does that change? And yet at this rally in St. Louis, he had t thousands and thousands of people. He had huge crowds yes. at, at this event. So uh, perhaps that speaks for itself. Perhaps that's what the campaign views is what's winning what's mm. working. Um, but I think these questions about both Sanders and Biden and about their performance, about their age, they're only going to increase. You know, the headline at Politico today is uh, is about the, you know, the, the dementia election, talking mm. about Biden, Sanders and Trump. These are awkward, sensitive yeah. things to talk about, but it's getting louder and louder. It is. And, yeah. and by the way, it's getting used against the Democrats by voices on Fox News at the same time. That's right. Um, and, and Bernie supporters. I have seen a lot of Bernie supporters going after Biden. After Biden. Biden. Mental health, but but yeah. again, all three of these contenders, yeah. uh, they're all in their 70s. Um, Trump has notoriously uh, and outrageously attacked the press. Um, he's severely limited press access to the White House. As you know, he's suing a number of networks. Um, we don't want a repeat of that, uh, obviously. Who is the better candidate for president where press freedom is concerned, in your view, just watching the media and watching these guys interact with the media. Bernie Sanders has come out with a plan trying to support local journalism that's been starving and struggling. Yeah. On the other hand, he also attacks what he calls the corporate media. Yes. Uh, and earlier this week, he said, don't believe what you read in the media. He, he views familiar. the media as a foil yeah. in the same way Trump does, and he taps into that same kind of anger against institutions that Trump does. Yeah. Uh, Biden, much more of a, a stay the course, normalcy sort of thing. I think what we'd see with Biden is the same thing we saw with Obama. We'd see the restoration of press briefings and things like mm. that. Uh, would Sanders restore press briefings? Would he make these other steps uh, to, to uh, kind of turn back what Trump was doing and, and go back to what we would consider normal pre-Trump? I don't know. I think those are good questions for him. Hmm. Well, we'll be watching it all. It'll be interesting to see if either of those candidates really change their tactics now that they're the last men standing. And how it's all affected by coronavirus and what they do differently well, because of this other... thing that is surrounding all of us. Yeah. It really uh, it, it really is. It affects it, every story. It could be a game changer. It could be could. could be the game changer of this um, election. Brian, yeah. thanks so much for joining me. Thanks. Uh, make sure to tune in uh, to Brian's show tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern on Reliable Sources. He'll have all the latest headlines on the news that matters, including, yep, coronavirus. Facts are so important, so don't miss that. You'll also want to uh, check out CNN's new podcast. Join Dr. Sanjay Gupta for Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. Listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. All right, that's it for me. CNN Newsroom is up next. Stick around.
We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.